Let's stand in the honor of reading the word of our God. Luke chapter 1, we'll begin in verse 46. Luke giving us this account under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. All right, you may be seated. So we've been looking at at spiritual warfare these last uh, uh, several months. Um, I wanted to say weeks, several months. Uh, I think it's about a year and a half now. But anyway, uh, we've been looking at it for a while, uh, looking at how Jesus tells us specifically, he tells us to ask to be delivered from evil, that that's to be a, a part of our constant prayers. Like, what should you pray every time you pray? You should ask for God to deliver us from evil. Now, here we are in a season on our liturgical calendar where we are thinking about the birth of Christ, where we're thinking about the incarnation explicitly and all that that means, where even the lost world is at least recognizing, uh, even in their denial that something special is going on, uh, is, is at least recognizing something about the birth of the Christ. Uh, and that, this season, uh, what you see going on, the songs you hear on the radio, uh, seems to be almost the opposite of what we've been looking at. We can think that Christmas and all of that is sort of the opposite of this idea of spiritual war. I mean, we've been looking at war with, with demons and dragons and death. Uh, and now we're looking at birth stories and mangers uh, and wise men and shepherds and cute little precious moments donkeys and uh, and stuff like that. And it can seem totally the opposite of what uh, we've been looking at as if it's like, all right, let's take a break from spiritual warfare to talk about something nice. Let's take a break from spiritual warfare to talk about good and sweet stories. But the reality is, is if those two are, are juxtaposed, you've got spiritual warfare and then you've got Christmas, but the, the, the truth is what we've been looking at and what we're talking about in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, those two things actually go together very well. Spiritual warfare and the incarnation of Christ could not go better together because Christmas, the birth of Christ, the incarnation is an act of war. It is an act by God of spiritual war and the Bible paints it as such. Often, again, when we talk about the incarnation, you'll hear people talk about Christmas and talk about a war on Christmas. But there has been a war on the birth of Christ, on the birth of the Christ child, since the beginning. Since the garden. Now, why has there been a war on the incarnation? Why has there been a war against the coming child since the beginning? Why? Because the birth of the child itself is an act of war against the serpent. So forget about the war on Christmas. That's just sort of the natural response of the fallen world. 
The reality is they didn't start the fight. God did. God started the fight. The incarnation is war. The child come in the flesh is war. The Christ in the flesh is war. And it's proclamation and praise continue to be acts, not of just jollity, but acts of war against the darkness. Now let's see how the Bible will describe the coming of the Christ as an act of war. An act of war against these spiritual forces that we've been praying about. Against these spiritual forces that the Bible tells us we wrestle against. We are wrestling against spiritual forces that God has started a war with. My hope is that we will take our Christmas celebrations, our thoughts on the incarnation, and realize that the coming of Jesus was a mighty act of God, not just for us, but a mighty act of God against evil. The Bible is clear that the coming of Christ is an act of war. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 is going to tell us that Christ came. Why did the Christ child come? Why was the baby born in the manger? The Bible tells us he came to make war. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The Son of God comes. He, we're going to use Latin for the only time in the year we use Latin. Uh, the, the Son of God advents. For what purpose? He comes to destroy. Now, God may have sent His Son to save His people, but God also sent His Son to destroy the works of the devil. And sometimes we get so sweet and cuddly about this season that we forget that the child in the manger is there to destroy. That the enfleshment of the Christ child is an act of war. But we've known this. We've known that this would be an act of war since the beginning. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. What does it say? This this, uh, proto-gospel here. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Talking to the serpent. I'll put enmity between you and the woman. Between your offspring, your seed, and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So from the very beginning, the seed of Adam, the offspring of the woman is coming to bruise the head of the serpent. To crush it under his feet. Satan is warned about this from the very first days of creation. The child is coming to crush your head. Not today, Satan, but one day. One day. And so if Christ is coming to destroy and if he's coming to crush... If that's how the Bible describes it, he's come to destroy the works of the devil. The seed is going to come to crush your head. It's not surprising that when you actually get to the story of Christmas, if you're recognizing that, if you're getting to the the story of the birth of Christ, it is infused with war language. With language of warfare and fighting. Let's take, for example, Mary's song that we read. Uh, Just to lay a little bit to it, Mary has been told uh, at this point, she's been told that even though she is a virgin, or as she says, even though she does not know a man, she's going to conceive in her womb and bear a son, a son who will be named Jesus and who will be son of the Most High. 
and that he's going to be the promised king who's going to reign over the house of David forever. She's told this child will be conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, that he will be holy, the son of God, that, 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 that nothing is impossible with God. And that it, to show that even her barren relative Elizabeth is going to be proof to her of this. And so Mary, in haste, goes to see the proof. She went to see Elizabeth, and sure enough, Elizabeth is pregnant. And not only that, but the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaps for joy when he hears Mary's voice. And Elizabeth herself is filled with the Holy Spirit and proclaims that Mary is the mother of her Lord. And so Mary, where we get to, Mary does what we would all do in a similar circumstance. Mary begins to sing. There is in Mary's song, as we look through it, there is, you can just look there in Luke 1, there's a lot of stuff that you would expect for Advent, a lot of stuff on the Incarnation, a lot of stuff you would expect around Christmas time, blessing and mercy, feeding the hungry, helping His people, all of that, but right in the middle of it is the way these things are going to happen. And they happen because the child in Mary's womb is himself a mighty act of God. An act not just to display his power, but an action against the darkness. There's destruction language. There's head-crushing language. All the things we saw in 1 John 3 and Genesis 3, you get that language here in what we read. What are we seeing in this song? So how do we see war here? And how do we see that Mary gets it? That Mary understands what she's singing. That she knows this is not just a sweet moment. This is revelation. This is war. This is a song of the sword. that will pierce her own heart also. Look at verses 49 through 52 of what we read. 49 through 52. He who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is His name. His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. The birth of Christ is an act of great might. It is a show of strength, but not just in display. He is not, God is not just flexing, but a show of strength against our enemies and His enemies, against the forces of darkness, both spiritual and physical. In fact, you could say that the birth of Christ is the ultimate act of God against the darkness. The ultimate act of the arm of the Lord to destroy wickedness because it is when the arm of the Lord is made flesh. And whose work will destroy not just the work of the devil, but the devil himself. And will put even death to death. 
This is why we say that Christmas is war. This is why Paul can say that Christ is the fulfillment of all of the promises of God. That that is why when we see Christ, we see the yes to all of God's promises. When we see him, when he is there, all the promises of God get her. So we utter our amen to him for his glory. Why? Because when the arm of God becomes flesh, the promises of God are fulfilled. All that God has promised he has done because the Christ has come but this arm of the lord when mary says oh the the arm of the lord is doing this mary is not picking up on some sort of new theme she's not got some new metaphor she wants to wrap around this idea of god the arm of the lord is a rich biblical theme on the actions of god for his people and against the darkness so when mary is saying the arm of the lord is is come is doing this we see that she's speaking from a rich biblical background. You can go all the way back to Exodus, all the way back to Deuteronomy. The arm of the Lord is a symbol of the strength of God, uh, of God's actions on behalf of his people and against their enemies. So Exodus chapter 6, God tells Moses to say to the people that God is going to redeem them with an outstretched arm. That his arm is going to save them. You go to Mary's song here. uh, Isn't even the first time that someone sings about the arm of the Lord. In fact, she's not even in the top five of first people to sing about the arm of the Lord. Moses sings about the arm of the Lord in Exodus 15. In Moses' song. He sings that it was God's mighty hand and the greatness of his arm that has frightened the enemies of God's people. That the Egyptians, the Egyptians who are scared, he says, of no other nation. Yet they are as still as stone against Israel. Why? He says, because of God's arm. That the enemies of God who fear nothing physical are frightened to death because they see the arm of the Lord. And this builds, you go into Deuteronomy, and as the people of God are reminded over and over, that he's going to tell them, God is going to save you by his hand, but also with his arm, an arm that helps them by crushing their enemies, which is an important reminder. Because when, when we think of the hand of God, or we think of the arm of God saving us, we often picture it as God with the outstretched arm simply pulling us up. So when we talk about how the arm of God is going to save you, we go, oh yes, and we think of God's arm and his hand extended to grasp us and pull us up. But the imagery of the arm of God and our salvation in those songs is of an arm stretched out, but not to pull us in, but an arm stretched out to crush our enemies. It is an arm that brings terror. And Mary is singing that that arm is at work in the birth of, of her child, the arm of the Lord that strikes terror in God's enemies, that causes them to freeze like stone, is showing its strength in her womb. And the enemies of God know it. And they quake at what the arm of God is about to do. And when you read the birth stories, you can see they're quaking and shuddering and they're frothing throughout them. The arm of God imagery continues in the Old Testament, but by the time you get to the book of Isaiah, something happens. By the time you get to the book of Isaiah, the arm of God begins to morph from just being a metaphoric image of strength to where the arm of the Lord begins to be spoken of like a person. 
the promise of a person who will be the arm of the Lord. The arm, the strength of the Lord made flesh. And so the arm of the Lord, as you begin to read, begins to move from an it to a he. We know that Isaiah, I mean, when we're talking about Advent, we're talking about Christmas, we know that Isaiah is filled with allusions to the coming of Christ. Filled with them. I mean, we're in Isaiah, that's, that's what we're reading in, in our family Bible reading. We're reading the book of Isaiah, and there's a, there's a lot of good Advent stuff there. You've got the promise of Emmanuel. You've got the virgin conceiving and bearing a child. You've got the root of Jesus. You've got all sorts of images that are going to be picked up in the New Testament and pointed back to Isaiah saying, remember, Isaiah the prophet talked about this. And so it's not shocking that when you've already got all of those Isaiah references going on, all the things that are happening, the virgin conceiving and bearing a child, him who's coming being named Emmanuel, all of these things taking place, the forever king to sit on the throne of David forever. And and all of this is being said to Mary. And she who knows the word of God is, is thinking these thoughts of what's been promised to them. It's not shocking that the virgin who herself is a fulfillment of the promises of Isaiah, also alludes to those same promises, also alludes to those same prophecies. And so Mary sings and she sings about the arm of the Lord. But this arm was not just going to be the actions of God. This arm was going to be the person of God. It was going to be the arm, but more than just a arm. It was going to be an arm who was also a body, and that's what we see in Christ. In Mary's womb, the arm of the Lord has taken on flesh. In fact, in later Gospels, we're going to be told to see Christ is to see the arm of the Lord. So uh, John tells us this, John chapter 12, 36 through 41, when Jesus had said these things, he departed, hid himself from them, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he's blinded their eyes. He's hardened their heart. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. So when Isaiah is talking about the arm of the Lord, as Isaiah is talking about the John says, he is talking about Christ. He saw his glory and spoke of him. John tells us when Isaiah is talking about the arm of the Lord, he's not talking about an it He's talking about him. And so then when we read about the arm of the Lord in Isaiah, we know that ultimately not just how, but who that's going to be fulfilled in. We know the arm of the Lord is not just a what, but a who. And we begin to see what not just the arm of the Lord is going to do, but what Christ is going to do as the arm of the Lord made flesh. And so what was the arm going to do when it came? What was Emmanuel coming to do? Why is God with us? Why is the arm of God, who is God with us, why is he here? Why has he come in the flesh? Why not just more arm of God doing arm of God stuff that he'd been doing throughout the scriptures? Why in flesh now? What's he going to do? When this virgin conceives, what is the arm of the Lord going to do then? 
Well, when you go back and you read Isaiah, well, there's a lot that we could say that the arm of the Lord is going to do, but one thing that I thought was important in terms of the warfare picture is that the arm of the Lord is coming to reign. Isaiah chapter 40. Look at Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 is a great passage. Great passage about God bringing comfort to his people, right? I want to bring you comfort uh, in the midst of a really uh, tough time. And so what does he tell his people? He, he, he says, I'm going to cover you. I'm going to get you ready for the, for the glory of the Lord. It's about to be revealed. This is, this is actually alluded to as well in like the coming of the birth of, of John the Baptist. Uh, and so all this is going to make way, make things ready. God is coming and, and they're told that the people will look and behold your God. Like that's, that's Isaiah 40. That's what it's laying out there. But look at verses 9 and 10. When we see this, behold your God. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news, herald of the gospel. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. And His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His recompense before Him. So you've got this passage quoted in the birth story. Pulled in the birth story multiple times. And part of that passage is God is going to come and his arm is going to rule. And of course, we know that Christ is the rule of God on earth. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. But that's not the only passage in Isaiah that talks about the ruling nature of the arm of the Lord. Look at Isaiah 51. Isaiah 51. Go down to verses 4 and 5. It says, Give attention to me, my people. Give ear to me, my nation. For a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the people. Arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. So the arm of God is what is going to judge the nations. But oddly, in Isaiah 51, this is something the nations are actually waiting for. They're waiting for it. They're wanting it. The coastlands are are longing for it. They're hoping for it, waiting for it. And so at the coming of Christ, this arm of God has come to do this very thing. It has come to rule. It has come to execute this justice and judgment even over the peoples of the earth as it rules over them. What does Isaiah tell us about the ruling arm of the Lord in Isaiah 9? Isaiah 9 verses 6 through 7. Again, a passage we quote often in this time of year. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So the arm of the Lord comes 
the child is born unto us, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. That child is born, that son comes, that son of the Most High, that son of God that we read in this arm of the Lord, and it tells us that the government and rule rest on his shoulders. And that it will not end from the time he comes to when? To forevermore. In fact, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that Christ did what He said He would do, that He is reigning and He must continue to reign and rule until He has put all His enemies under His feet. So you've got this ruling aspect of the Lord, but, but, but of the arm of the Lord, but how do we see war in that? Because what we're going to see is when the arm of the Lord comes and He establishes His rule, He rules by crushing the enemies of God and by rescuing God's people. And there's all, sorts of, there's all sorts of places we could go to look at this, but I want to look specifically at when it tells us that the arm of the Lord is going to rule in that way. Go back to Isaiah 51. Isaiah 51, we read verses 4 and 5. Go down to verses 9 and 11. Uh, in Isaiah 51, the, the, the people are told, after, after being you know, uh, told this about give attention, pay attention, my arm's going out, the coastlands are going to be waiting. We're told... The people are told to look for the promises of God. God who, is, who turns wilderness into Eden. Right? Look for Him. And look at what it says. Beginning of verse 9. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you? who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the grape deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. And sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So we're told back in verses 4 and 5, the arm of the Lord is going to do this. The people are waiting for the arm of the Lord. And here we see in 9 through 11, what the arm of the Lord is going to do. Awake, awake, put on strength, the arm of the Lord and do this. The arm of the Lord has always been a horrible time for the enemies of God and a time of rejoicing for his people. The arm of, when the arm of the Lord comes and works, the dragon is defeated. Rahab is cut to pieces. I would love, I would read Psalm 89. Go, just go read Psalm 89 when you're done with your normal Bible reading and you want to get into some trippy stuff. All right, so just go read Psalm 89 because, because we're going to preach on that something because it is, it is a good picture of the conflict in the unseen realm. In these realm, well, really the unseen and the seen realms the conflict against the Lord and God's judgment in that. So Psalm 89.10 says, uh, you crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with a mighty arm. If you're not familiar with the Old Testament very much, the only 
Rahab you know, you're wondering, why is God crushing her? Uh, you know, it seemed like a good story. But here you go, and, and actually there are more references to Rahab as this dragon enemy of the Lord than there are the story of Rahab. So, so you've got, you read Psalm 89. Again, you see that same thing talked about in Isaiah 51. What's the arm of the Lord going to do? The arm of the Lord crushes, crushes the dragon, cuts uh, Rahab in pieces, pierces the dragon. Job 26, Job 26, 12 and 13. By his power, we're going to see the same. You're often going to see Rahab and the sea mentioned together. You want to know more about that? You have to join the foundry. Find out what happens on day five of creation. Otherwise, sorry. Uh, but, but you see, you often see the two paired together. The sea and Rahab. The sea and the dragon. And, and you see it in Job 26, 12, and 13. So just like we saw in Isaiah 51 same, and Psalm 89, you see the same thing in Job 26, 12, and 13. The sea and the dragon paired together. By his power, he stilled the sea. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab. By his wind, the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. So the arm of the Lord, what has he always done? The arm of the Lord crushes the evil one. Crushes the enemy of God. He crushes the dragon. And the birth of Christ is the final act of that crushing. With Christ on earth, we see Satan bound, no longer able to deceive the nations. We see his house plundered by the true king of this world. We see it's for the people of God. So you see that destruction of the enemies. But for the people of God, the arm of the Lord, the coming of the arm of the Lord is not a time to be feared. It is a, an awaited time. It is a longed for time, a time of great joy and of rejoicing, right? Where they break forth into song. They obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing flee away. So for the enemies of God, it's a time of war and it's, it's scary because the arm of the Lord is coming to crush them as he's done before. The past is littered with their carcasses. And now the arm of the Lord is made flesh. Now the arm of the Lord has stepped foot, literally, on creation. But for the people of God, it's not a time of fear. It's a time of joy. It's a time they've been waiting for. A longed for time. A time of great joy. A time of singing. Why? Well, because our enemies are going to be destroyed. Our enemies that have affected our lives. Sorrow and sighing. And I think this is why it's so important to read the text and make sure you read the text. If you notice that, it doesn't just say that sorrow and sighing will be no more. What does it say? Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. They are running away. Because the curse is being lifted and the cursed ones who brought with them their curses on us, the cursed ones are being conquered. This is why Christmas is war. This is why the incarnation is an act of war. Christ taking on flesh, the son of God being born of the virgin was an act of war by God Almighty to bring about his kingdom. In Christ, the arm of the Lord has come. And he has come to rule. And it's war because God's enemies know that. They know it. They know that's what the Son came to do. And it frightens them. And they rage against it. I mean, from the very beginning, they have all the children in a certain region killed to try and stop it. They wage a war on Christmas. The birth of Christ is a war waged ultimately, firstly, by the king. By the king who has shown up 
and taken on flesh so that He might reign, redeeming His people, destroying their enemies, and reigning forever. So what do we do with that idea? What do we do when we, when we begin to, to think of Christmas that way? When we take it out of this precious moments feel, and, and really when we are thinking about the Advent and the Incarnation, and, and we recognize it's probably better to take it out of that sort of uber-festive feel. Or when I say uber-festive, I don't mean not celebrating, because it's very clear what we read. Like, it's a great time of celebration. But we also want to, to, to grasp the context of the celebration. Because it is a context of war and of certain victory. You know, the fact that, that God has come to fulfill His promises, they are here. All of God's promises are finding their yes in this Christ child so that we utter our amen to God's glory. We're saying amen. God is doing all that He promised to do. And we're singing and we're shouting about that. But what does God promise to do to save us and to crush our enemies? So what can we do to... To, to make sure we understand Christmas in its right context, if we understand the incarnation rightly. When we're thinking about the Son of God made flesh, what can we do? Make your Christmas celebrations offensive. Offensive. Meaning this, Christmas is a time of divine offense. Don't, don't, be, don't be, our job as Christians is not to be defensive about the birth of Christ. It is a time for the church to be, to be militant, to be pushing forward because we're gaining ground. Not to lose momentum over snide comments or false denials or I can't believe they're rejecting this or whatever. And, and just trying to, to, we're not trying to hold ground. In Christmas, the kingdom presses on. When, when, the, when the Christ child comes... War is declared and the kingdom of God goes on the offensive and will go on the offensive until every knee bows and every tongue confesses. We'll be on the offensive until the glory of the Lord covers the earth like waters cover the sea. The birth of Jesus and the events around his birth have always been offensive. And I mean that in a very much intentional double entendre. Not just offending which they have always done. Think of when the wise men showed up and they were like, where can we find the real king? Right? Already offended. Uh, not just offending, but also an offensive move by the Lord. Christmas is an offensive move by our God. The incarnation, the coming of the child God made flesh is an offensive move by God against the kingdom of darkness. It is a conquering. It is not just a declaration of war, which has happened before. It is an act of war. We like to talk again. We like to talk about a war on Christmas. There's always been a war on Christmas since the first one. And since that time, the the dragon, though defeated, is, is raging. Raging against the children of that, of that first Christmas because he knows his time is short. Saying there's a, a, a war on Christmas isn't saying anything new. It's not saying anything that hasn't been true since the bite of the apple. And the truth is, I'm not sure it's saying anything helpful either to talk about the war on Christmas because it, it makes it look like our job is to try and defend what happened on that day. Christmas doesn't need to be defended. 
the birth of Christ does not need to be defended. Because it's an attack. It is the enemy that is on the defensive. Again, it is the, the war against the evil. And Christ doesn't hold ground. Christ takes ground. Christ is always and has always been on the offensive. There may indeed be a specific war on Christ. But make no mistake, God is the one who fired the first shot. The enemy cannot stop with the birth of Christ uh, put into, you know, um, not motion, because it had already been in motion. He can't stop with the birth of Christ put into flesh. So don't fear. But also, so don't be afraid. Don't be on the defensive, but also be on the offensive. So when you're talking about the incarnation, people are, are really not wanting to put all the focus on Jesus, all this other stuff. We can get so defensive as if our job is to try and to defend. Don't fear. Don't fear that Christmas is going to be lost or the birth of Christ is going to be lost or anything like that. But also be offensive in your celebration of the birth of Christ. Be on the offensive, however you do it. However you do it, whether you go big around December, really honing in on the birth of Christ as your theme for the month, or if you're more of an every day is about the incarnation person. Recognize that in none of those is this just some sweet baby in a manger. This is war that you are proclaiming. When you teach your children what it means that Christ took on flesh, make sure they understand that he took on flesh to wage war against the works of the devil. That this is a war that you are proclaiming and a war that you are waging. So what does it look like? So what does it look like to have an offensive Christmas? What does it look like to be on the, on the offensive? Well, it's not, it, it's not just by, you know, it's not just saying, you know, Merry Christmas every time someone says, uh, happy holidays. You know, although it's not a, that's not a bad start, you know, to be like, I don't want to play your, uh, you know, sort of, uh, December version of what's your preferred holiday pronoun. Uh, I'm saying Merry Christmas, you know, whatever. Uh, but not, nor in some austere, more pious, uh, you know, I can't wait to get out of this sort of place, uh, humbuggery either. I think Nehemiah, I think Nehemiah gives us a good look at, at what it looks like to celebrate the acts of God. What does it look like to celebrate the acts of Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10? Then he said to them, so they've got the, the law of the Lord, reading it. What do they do? He says, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. <laughs> Again, it's great because it's like eat, drink, and gives gifts. Uh, because that's what the Lord has done. This is what the Lord has done. So rejoice in it. Be a happy people. Our love for the Lord and for one another is actually the most offensive part of Christmas you can do. The most offensive thing you can do in Christmas is just to love the Lord and love one another. Because we were once them and we were once like them, but not anymore. Christmas should be put on the offensive and your celebrations should be intentionally offensive. Trying to show, trying to take the war to the darkness. But with that, 
you must, so first thing you can do is make your Christmas celebrations offensive, not defensive, go on the offense. Uh, You must wage a life of war, not just a season. If you want to celebrate the incarnation rightly, you must wage a life of war, not just a season of war. The, this is, uh, this, Christmas is, is a, a sort of spiritual uh, version, a spiritual act of war, like the storming of Normandy Beach. Right? Christmas is when the Son of God steps foot on the battlefield. But there's still a lot to follow. And the rest... Uh, until he returns, is a story of how he is putting his enemies under his feet. But, but we're, not, we're not just bystanders to the story. We're not just lookers. We're not just watchers. We're not the people who brought picnic baskets, you know, to the, uh, to the Battle of Bull Run. We're not just watching this story happen. The, the, the reason this can't be a seasonal, just a seasonal celebration is, is we are the story. We are, we are what that arm of the Lord made flesh has done. We are the conquering who were conquered themselves. We are the ones who some generations ago, however many it might be, some generations ago, the king stole someone in your family out of the kingdom of darkness. And that changed everything for you. For generations, some time ago. There was someone who was not of the people of God and then became of the people of God and they taught their children about the Lord God and they taught their children's children and their children's children's children. That happened somewhere for some of you. And now that act of war continues to bear fruit in your life. You are part of what the arm of the Lord came to do. And you might be able to take it, trace it back to a great-grandfather or even a grandmother, great-great-great-great-great, whomever. But somewhere, in some past generation, the king plucked, stole, went on the offensive against your bloodline. And you're a result of that. Maybe for some of you, you are the first in that thousand generations. Maybe you're the one who grew up in the enemy's camp. And you're the one who was very plainly seeing that you have been plucked by the king out of the kingdom of darkness. However your family got to this story, or however you specifically got to this story, you are part of God's work to pull the world from the kingdom of darkness and plant them in the kingdom of light. So don't think, you're, don't think when it comes to Christmas, you're just talking about a story that has happened. It is a story that is happening because the arm that took on flesh is still in the flesh. And the ramifications of that are still happening. Christmas is going to change the world, but it has also changed you. The life you have and the holiness of it is God's good, gracious gift to you. So don't, I mean, don't throw, don't throw what God has done to you and sending a son and how that changed you, how that ripped you out of that kingdom of darkness. Don't throw that, you know, over your shoulder like some knit sweater by Aunt Noreen. Uh, that you open and you go, yay, another 110% wool sweater, uh, right? Uh, I know this is going to be super itchy. And she's like, can you put it on so I can take a picture? And you're like, yes, this will be the only time I ever wear it. Uh, don't treat the work of God in your life, the gift of God, like 
that the Savior has come and He has saved you. Wear that gift every day of your life like some teenager with their favorite hoodie. Like just wear it all the time. Why? Because what the Christ has done has changed you. And it has changed everything. I mean, you should, you should, you should wear, your, your life should glow with holiday holiness throughout the year. Recognizing what the incarnation means for you, what the arm of the Lord has done for you. Your life should look like you've wrapped yourself in Christmas lights. Every day, proclaiming to people, Christ is real. He has come and he changes people. He rips people out of the kingdom of darkness. He crushes the head of the serpent. He redeems his people and he will reign forever. Every day of the year that should be shining in your life. Not just your house during this holiday season. And look, my house shines, right? With I've maybe even 5% beyond being a wise man, right? It, it is shining. Why? Because I, I, love, I love the birth of Christ. I want everyone to know and proclaim and wonder. Why is this like, oh yeah, because of Christmas. But if my life does not shine in July, if when I pack up the lights, I pack up my holiness, there is something wrong with my thoughts about the birth of my Savior. Let your life emanate holiday cheer and holiday holiness. Because Christ has come not just then, but now in you and every day is different for you and for your children and your children to a thousand generations. It's all different. Why? Because of that day. Every day is now different of your story. Every day. Because of that day. But not only are we part of the story, we are also the means that God uses to proclaim that story. We are the means God uses to proclaim the Savior's birth, but also to proclaim His life, His death, His resurrection, and reign and return. The first wise men brought gifts to the king. We are the wise men who take the gift of the king to the nations, beginning with our neighbors. The proclamation of the gospel by us and the presence of the gospel in us is what God uses to plunder the enemy's house. God did not fire a shot at the birth of Christ and we all just watch as it sails through time until it whacks Satan in the chest in another 6,000 years. We celebrate His first days. We rejoice in them. But, but what? So we rejoice that the King has come. And we know what that means for our life. But what, what does our Christ declare to us on His last day? When the arm has been made flesh and the strong man is bound and the kingdom is advancing through a whopping 12 folks, what does Christ tell his people? Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The king has come. The arm of the Lord is here. And he's ruling like God said he would. And the nations lie in front of you with your king telling you, I I actually reign. I rule. Now go and make disciples. Go and make disciples of these nations. So light up your house in celebration during the season. But then, but then fill your dining room with your neighbor family in January. Invite that family that has no Christian history whatsoever over. Who have kids that are like little hell raisers. And do it with the intention of robbing them from the enemy. And replacing generational curses with blessings to a thousand generations. How can you confidently do that? Because the arm of the Lord has come. So go to war. Your king has stepped on the battlefield. The arm of the Lord has taken on flesh. So rejoice. Rejoice and run headlong into the battle and proclaim to the world, Merry Christmas, long live the true King. Let's pray. Just take a moment, and as we think about the incarnation, we think about what it means that the Son of God has taken on flesh, that God has come. Behold your God is here to rescue. Comfort, comfort, bring comfort to the people. Why? Who's going to rescue them? Who's going to save them? Where is it going to come from? And the Lord says, your God is coming to save you. And we see that when the arm of the Lord took on flesh. Mary's song, pulling us back all the way to Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, the prophets, the Psalms. And you think about what the arm of the Lord does and what it did. Ask yourself this as we're we're praying. How can you be more offensive in your picture of the incarnation? How can you take this picture of the arm of the Lord made flesh and use that to be more on the offense when you think about the birth of Christ. To be more offensive, of course, in December, but also to be on the offense in February and June and August. How can you have the confidence that this arm of the Lord, this holy great power of the Lord has come to you and said, yes, I rule and I reign like I said I would. Now, what do you do? Go and make disciples. How can you confidently do what the arm of the Lord has told you to do? Are you being offensive in your recognition that Christ is really king and that he's ruling and reigning until he puts all his enemies under his feet? Or are you just kind of like think your job is just be defensive? How can you, how can you be more offensive in recognizing the great power that is taken on flesh and the confidence that that should give you, that should give us. 
And how, how can the birth of Christ shape not just your December, but every day of your life? And can you look at it and say, you know what, it, it does, it more shapes my December than any other day. Well, then confess that. Confess that you might focus on the incarnation in December, and sadly, it doesn't affect any of the rest of your life. You're trying to make up for how little you do for the Lord by really going all out for a month. Confess that your light shines with less holiness in March than it does in December. That you care more about people thinking about Jesus now and what their shirts say and what the bell ringers say and all that than you do what your life says the rest of the year. Let us make much. Let us make much of Christmas. Let's make much of the birth of Christ. Let us rejoice that the Lord has taken on flesh. But it must shape every day of your life. And it must put you on the offensive. Waging war against the kingdom of darkness that you yourself have been pulled from. Waging war in your home, through family devotionals, reading the scriptures, talking about God, singing about God, waging war in your neighborhood, seeing the people across you not just as enemies but as targets. Always on the offensive because the arm of the Lord has taken on flesh. His enemies will fall and His people will be redeemed. May that confidence shape every day of your life. Father, we come to you today and God, we ask, we ask, Father, that we would even, I mean, the idea, Lord, we know, we know, God, that we can't actually understand what it means for the Son to take on flesh. But we know what you tell us that it means. We know the things, those secret things might be hidden from us, but you have revealed to us You have revealed to us a lot about what that will mean for us and what it will mean for this world and what it will mean for enemies of the gospel. And and we should have a ton of confidence. And it it should shape, Father, how we live. It should shape how confidently we talk to the people we see on the street. It should shape how confidently we go over to approach our neighbor that we know know nothing about you and are sitting entrenched in a dark kingdom that your son came to rip people out of. And we don't know. We don't know who it is by your good pleasure that you rip from that kingdom, but we know that we were once there. But by your good graces, we aren't any longer. In light of those good graces, may it shine like holiday lights in our lives as we proclaim to the rest of the world that Christ is King and that there is life in His name. And to rebel against Him will mean death as it always has. But in Him there is light and life abundantly. Father, help us to know those things. Help us to live those things. 
Not just today, not just this week, not just for the next couple of weeks, but every day. To be shaped by the reality that our King has come, now everything has changed. Help us, Father, to not only proclaim uh, the gospel, but to have it present in our lives as well. That we might shine as lights in a dark generation. It's in Christ's name that we ask this. Amen.